Hi, I'm Adam from Chicago. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Sandra Singlo, uh, is an author, a public radio commentator, a sometime actress, uh, and solo performer. Her most recent book, called Mother on Fire, a true motherfucking story about parenting, um, and I hope that my editor remembers to bleep out that swear <laughs> word that yeah, I just left please in there. absolutely put your trust 100% in editors to bleep it out later, for sure, Jesse. Okay, nice move there. good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> is the, it's the, Her new book is the story of uh, her coming to terms uh, with the Los Angeles Unified School District and with her own status as uh, a newly minted... Uh, person in young middle age. Yes. Sandra, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Oh, well, thank you so much. One of the themes of the book is your life plan um, <laughs> and its its development uh, over the course of the past 20 years or so. Yes. Um, tell me what your life plan was originally, say, when you first began to formulate it as, uh, in realistic terms, as, say, a, a college student. Well, when I was young, eons ago, about 20 years ago, so I came of age in the 80s, and um, so we weren't the Woodstock generation, and at that point, we had nothing, you know, we were the people who would have feared a gathering as large as, as Woodstock, as I understand no it, As I understand it, you wore suspenders and worked on Wall Street, is that correct? Yeah, it was all kind of the Brett Easton Ellis, that, that was, or, you know, and it was kind of like these uh, modernist apartments with the, you know, it was... Ours was the uh, era of pet shop boys and flock of seagulls. The doos doos doos. Well, I think there's still that doos 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 today, but it was a different doos 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 then. Um, and so horrible. Also, the Bay City Rollers. I, I I don't want to cite many of the bands of that period, but it was like a lot of high hair at that point. I actually my bangs were kind of moosed in a high poodle situation because I'm Asian American, so my hair does not really work that way. I There were cowboy epaulets worn, there were rubber pants, there was experimental clothing, and you would just sit in a bar in your 20s, and it was kind of like drinking beer, moving from one room to the next, listening to that doos, 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 doos. And yes, and I tried to map out my future on cocktail napkins of how I was going to escape this horrible world of my youth where I, I just had no purchase on the world at all. So at that time, um, Tama Janowitz's Slaves of New York came out and Brett Easton Ellis's Less Than Zero, two totemic books of my period. And you find, Jesse, when you're in your 20s in America, there will always be some young author or some authors just zooming out of the box at 23, 22, or 19. Typically, you know, it might be a Harvard degree in the Lampoon, and then like it's a 10, 10 book um, deal with wherever. And it's just often like a slim volume of 140 pages about how youth live today in a slightly disaffected setting. And everybody marvels that that book is written without artifice. You know, it's just like a little, um, you know, yeah, conversations happen and there are very few adjectives. And so for young fiction writers, it's amazing that they just kind of, the conversation is like, yeah, 
What? I don't know. Let's go get stoned. All right. Are you going to Rachel's party later? No. And so the but fact it's that it's a the, genera- generationally specific high that yes, they're going to obtain. Yes, exa- exactly. Genera- and, and so that book kind of gets got bought for a million or a zillion dollars so that, so that everybody else tries to emulate that book. Because if you're not famous by 24, it seemed 24 was the Wunderkind year. Once you cross the age of 24, you make it to 25, you no longer can have that wunderkind. You cannot have that fashion spread in... At that time, it was Esquire and Geeker, but now it's like whatever the magazines are now, the cool, hip... Like so, a fader. Yeah. Maybe a fader. Exactly. So it's 24. So you need to ram that fiction out by 24, and it has to be very short and spare. It doesn't have to be a long book. Um, so that's what I was trying to do. I was mapping out on cocktail napkins that I was in a fiction writing class at the time, and it was four stories per semester. So I felt I would take that class for three semesters by the end i would have 12 short stories that would make a collection it would sell for at least two hundred thousand dollars or more probably a million be some kind of generational bestseller you know tamma janowitz was writing about her apartments and so i would write about you know my boyfriends or whatever unfortunately well for fiction wise there wasn't a lot of like abuse happening i was just a bored person dating and drinking a lot of bartles and james's that's difficult for fiction if nothing tragic is occurring and then sort of by 30 you're done you have a couple of different apartments the the fashion spreads. I don't know what you do in your 30s, maybe make some films or whatever. And then by the 40s, you're into the Smithsonian, the Maya Angelou, the cheese in France year. I just didn't really see farther than that. That was my plan. Possibly you could obtain uh, one of those genius grants they were just handing out. Yeah, I know. And another year, didn't get one. Very confused. Um, yeah, the genius grants, maybe you save that for, you know, 37 to have something to look forward to in the back half of your 30s. But um, is that still kind of the plans that would... are today among our youth, do I you would, find? I would, only, I would only add to that the possibility of uh, spending my 60s as an ambassador to... Uh, yes. Does, is there an ambassador to Ibiza? The, oh, exactly. <laughs> Just considering doos, doos, that doos, doos, as yeah. a possibility. Yeah. Ambassador to Ibiza. Yeah, that would be... Um, yeah, that sounds really super good. Maybe a Nobel in there a peace prize would that be interesting <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely i'd be willing to accept it yeah i'm not going to seek it that would be distasteful it would be totally distasteful but i i see kind of a richard branson virgin airline kind of island where you meet with all the microsoft billionaires and change so i think at that point you want to start messing with the world and the planet and new ecosystems you know starting them with your money doesn't maybe that's can be added for like potentially on the moon yeah, why not in an eco-friendly Absolutely, way? Absolutely, eco-friendly. Uh, eco-friendly sure. moon colony. Absolutely. Of wine, a Pinot Noir situation. Absolutely. Yeah. So what were the various stages where this plan that you had changed? I think the first problem is, although IKEA furniture came in at the time, and that seemed like the promise that everything was going to be good, the Danish pine collapsing furniture for no price at all. Uh, and I think I think it is probably the moment when your IKEA furniture begins to collapse, that the mm-hmm. thread starts coming out of it. Um, you know, for the moment you buy it, it's cheap. That it starts to sort of collapse literally under people, and you see it's all a facade that you've put together. Where I guess in your 20s, the thing is, youth is always so trumped up, isn't it, as being the best time of your life? And it's kind of like was one of the more unpleasant times. (laughs) You know, you were developing 
mad crushes on inappropriate people. And so I remember as a young woman and uh, developing mad crushes on the wrong people, you make it to dinner with them and you cannot stop chattering about your implausible plans. I was a performance artist at the time and none of my performance art kind of made sense. And I was running around the city trying to be like an Italian futurist with the badly pomaded hair and the cowboy epaulets. Like nothing was working on me. I had no purchase on the world at all. And you have no money. So I didn't um, break through. At fi- Surprisingly enough, I was not a wunderkind at 24. I didn't really kind of break through into anything about 30 until about 34. And when I and I, I started doing solo shows and I went to off Broadway and did that sort of thing. But by the time I was 34, they go, "Ooh, better say you're 31," because by the time you learn your craft and actually are starting able to put it out, you're considered too old for you know. So at 34, I was already too old. Um, to do anything, you know, Hollywoodish or in important. So I, I was always the wrong age at the wrong time. But nevertheless, I forged forward in my 30s, then got more, you know, public radio credibility, had a few more books out, teaching. And so, and, and then the problem came at 42 when I'd cobbled together this kind of um, respectable career as kind of like the next, not like the next Amy Tan, because unfortunately she's still around. No, fortunately, she is a wonderful She's a wonderful talent. Nice um, but somehow, lady. you know, very nice lady, lovely dogs, lovely books, all good. But she still has my career. No, that's all right. So at 42, I'm you in public You guys are pretty radio. directly comparable. I mean, you share an ethnicity. We do. <laughs> but you would be surprised, my friend, when you get into that whole, like, literary canon where they look around and say, rummage through their kit bag and say, what women writers of color do we have? Uh, ew, here we are. No, you'd be amazed, my friend, how often we're lumped together. So, but at 42, you get getting fired for saying fuck on the radio, which I assume you'll bleep later at some point. I, I have complete trust. I can trust. only hope. Complete trust. Well, Maybe let's once. let's talk. We'll talk in a, in a moment about uh, swears and swearing and uh, collapsing careers. I want to talk for a second. <laughs> I want to talk momentarily, only momentarily collapsing. Let's be absolutely clear. That's one of the uh, the one of the great surprises of yeah. the narrative of your life is yes. the, how momentary that collapse was yes. and how things turned around. But I want to talk for a second about Los Angeles because you alluded to the peculiar vagaries of public radio fame in the context of Los Angeles, and I want to talk about Los Angeles a little. Uh, a, a little more broadly, because you, you yourself are from Southern California. Um, w- how do you think being in Los Angeles rather than being in uh, New York or Chicago or, you know, Minneapolis or like... Memphis or San Francisco uh, a- affected this trajectory and, and also affected your perspective on yourself and, and your, you know, the your planned story for your life? I think in Los Angeles, we are... Writers, prose writers, of course, as opposed to television film writers, prose writers are a club because we don't get no respect from our peers. Um, there isn't a legacy uh, like in New York, San Francisco, etc., Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston, any of those cities. It's not really a university. I mean, we do have great universities here. It's not a university town, so we don't get any respect. Um, but at the same point, it feels in the West like L.A. writers, and actually we're pretty supportive of each other it's like an outpost. It's the wild, wild west. It's gold country. We're like the little poets or the people, the black turtlenecks hunched under the Hollywoods. You know, it, it's it's the wild west out of here. So you can have n- enough rope to hang yourself or not, 
or the other. So um, in a way, I think it's a great town to create. Often when I go to New York, and I, I love that. Of course, it's a major city in the world. There's a lot going on. But um, I, this intensity of the physical contact you have with other writers every day is like, it can be overwhelming for me. It's almost like too much mental overload. And you're hyper aware of what person is writing this thing on that other thing. And blah, blah, blah. But in L.A., you know, you could go to your sleazy pad where... <laughs> in the valley where I live um, and you can actually you have a lot of time to write and foment and I think that you do need that time to crawl into a cave and generate your stuff so um, but it's a fun city and I think when people come and visit here as much as they trash our city and it's very trashable how many things are wrong I could name a thousand things wrong with it uh, we have a certain fun here people sometimes are surprised at the fun that we have because we don't care it, it's yeah it's, a, it's an outlaw city it's it's kind of fun you talk about the uh, necessary because of the the um, academic themes of the book and the uh, private versus public school debate, class becomes an issue uh, in this story. And class operates in a very strange way in Los Angeles. It's a world where uh, it's a world where creative people who would be your peers in a Boston or something like that can inexplicably become very rich uh, um, by happenstance or not become very rich by happenstance. And so w with your moderate level of success in the world of public radio and your husband's uh, career as a working musician, which is, you know, no small feat, you've earned this sort of middle-class lifestyle, whereas someone else who might have a similar level of skill and talent might somehow get a job as a, I don't know, one of those Disney Imagineers or something like that, and all of a sudden they're making a, you know, they got a $5 million check for, you know, having a particularly attractive hat or something like that. <laughs> no, that is a great, it's a great way of putting that. Here's an example. I was thinking about that um, very thing recently. So, like, uh, I think last year I had a one of many pilot deals that went sinking into the ocean but gave me health insurance. So I have healthy respect for that now. I used Literally to, healthy yeah, respect. A little. I used to mock that, but now I'm really, uh, I, I'm really glad to have, you know, to, you know, it's kind of like this, uh, the money spigot is like to be able to run under the money spigot for a moment and to get some and then go back. Sort it's of like really... taking a shower at the beach. Exactly. <laughs> So, and I remember I had a series of, of TV pitch meetings, and you'll notice today I'm, I'm dressed fairly badly, as I always am, because I just have no wardrobe. But going to Hollywood pitch meetings where we were discussing what to wear, and I go, see, you never want to dress up more higher than the person you're pitching to. Because if you're a writer, you should go in a T-shirt and jeans. And I remember one time when I got a at like oh, DreamWorks television or something, I noticed in the middle of the pitch meeting that I was dressed, they were dressed slightly worse than me and I should dress even worse than them. So, and it's a weird thing of class of kind of like, of course, you're not going to wear, to wear for me to pitch at NBC, like, and to wear a blazer or a, like one of those fruffly cravat, <laughs> really cravats or like, that would be to lose face. You must dress in a t-shirt and jeans preferably thongs and one time I was looking at a female executive and she'd put together she was wearing kind of like thong sandals but kind of an elegant like a hundred dollar thong two hundred dollar thong sandal um and the only people wearing coats are the valet parkers so the more you're if you're wearing a tie or you're wearing a vest you are on the bottom of the food chain because you're parking cars the valet parkers are are spit shined 
But the executives are totally wearing the rotten baseball cap, and, and, and it is a weird upending of class. But unfortunately, what happens, I think, in the old days when we had you know, the classes, the traditional Anglo-Saxon, the waspy classes, you know, it's kind of like, we're the upper class, we have, you know, our claret and our gin and our highballs, and we live in a mansion, and we are, you know, our liveried stable has men in powdered wigs, and we whip them, and we understand who the servants are, but we understand that at Christmas time, we must give to the poor. So at least if you are of a sense of class, you might ha- have a sense of obligation to the poor or giving alms to the poor. So I think, yes, as you're saying, the classes, they're not so mixed now, but in a way that's bad because the upper class doesn't realize, you know, you're the upper class. And I think with these schools, it's the metaphor in Los Angeles of these, in the school in my book, Wonder Canyon, of these, all the schools of like the beechwood and the willows and it's always the name of some tree about the creativity of the gifted kindergarten whatever and it's all the fragility of the soul it's a romantic time of that souls are very romantic and they need creativity and art and um and it's it's uh, it's scary it's the sound of young america i'm jesse thorne my guest is the writer and performer sandra singlo we'll have more with sandra in just a minute when we return Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. If you like The Sound of Young America, you probably want Sound of Young America wooden nickels, and there's only one way to get them. Okay, there's more than one way. If you donate, uh, if you start a new donation to The Sound of Young America, we will send you nickels. However, there is one other way to get them. Send us a self-addressed stamped envelope. The address is 720 South Normandy Avenue, number 512, Los Angeles, California, 90005. Send your SASE. We'll send wooden nickels. The end. Let's get back to my interview with writer and performer Sandra Tsinglo. Her most recent book is Mother on Fire. So you had two children. Yes. Um, your career is humming a- along at this nice, steady, middle-class yes. rate. Um, your career was, uh, uh, in no small part, as a public radio commentator. Yep. Uh, based at KCRW here in Los Angeles, yep. one of the uh, largest and best-known public radio stations in the country. Um, and it, it afforded you a certain a certain amount of local renown as one of the, you know, ten chosen commentators, the ten voices <laughs> of KCRW or whatever it is. Um, and you, in a taped commentary used what I will now refer to as the F word because I feel like the bleep, the bleep finger for my editor is probably raw and bloody at this point. <laughs> um, you, you use the F word in a commentary as you would sometimes and it would be bleeped out and your yeah. editor mistakenly... Yeah. Uh, uh, mistakenly forgot to bleep it out. Yeah. This was during the sort of the peak of the hysteria over if we put a swear word on the radio, we'll get, uh, you know, so the FCC will charge us a million dollars and it'll be catastrophic. And for for that offense of swearing on the radio, you were fired. Um, in the immediate aftermath, did it seem like everything was going to fall apart completely? Yes, it did. First of all, it occurred on Monday morning. First, it was humiliating. It's just humiliating. Because you you have a youthful thing that, like, I'm now 42. I'm like a mother of two children. 
and it's such a per it's 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 ridiculous and it's embarrassing and uh and we've done this for many years because i i can speak fairly quickly when i get going we just did it for rhythmic purposes and i think language sounds a certain way and it was a colloquial way of speaking uh and then my my boss ruth seymour who's a brilliant Ruth Seymour. She has a reputation in the public radio industry as both uh, extremely visionary for guiding KCRW to its status as one of the premier public radio stations in the country and uh, somewhat capricious. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, exactly. And I think she, it was a a difficult conversation. um, And she, you know, you're fired and get therapy. So she tells to say you're fired and and get therapy because something's wrong with you. And I did feel... You know, and Spalding Gray also committed suicide, I think, a little after that. So I think it is a a fragile position if you talk about your life every week and you've constructed this self, a neurotic self, and you know kind of the ways it goes. So to be fired and then being told to get therapy, that's like kind of hitting at the core of... you know maybe i've just lost it and i as i said in my book it was a time where i was really going maybe i just have lost it because i'd done this thing on osama bin laden and the talatola because i was arguing with with another friend from san francisco who said i can't believe after 9-11 that the towers fell and there was some morning radio calling and people were calling in with calling them camel jockeys and towel heads and the use of that language is so so you know uh violent and i said well isn't it more violent that the towers fell i mean shouldn't you be able to vent somewhere just use a funny word and to me the word towel head just was so comedic it was you know of all and so i did this whole thing about the osama bin laden being the talatola and um that language really physical violence is more violent than linguistic violence you know i just think but I felt I had lost my compass. I go, I don't really know where I'm going in my life. This is not the life I thought I would be leading at this particular point. You know, the Amy Tan, she's got the PBS Sagwa, the Family Cat, the Siamese Cat series. This is where I think I experienced my 40s as being a time kind of more like my 20s. 30s were, you know, going on a certain path of being unmoored, of going I don't know what am I I don't I don't know really I had all these plans of these arcs of where my success should be going and I thought it would be a gradual rise a vertical rise I didn't expect these dips and valleys that you would plunge that you would achieve something and you get your New York Times review or whatever and then I didn't expect that the next time you could plunge beyond into the toilet nobody had told me this and I guess you don't read that in magazines so much when you see the fashion spread of someone propped up and and ready I think like Benicio Del Toro, there's some guy like that who made that with the Buffalo whatever move. No, Vince Vincent Gall. Is that the guy's name? Vincent Gallo. Vincent Gallo. Whenever I read a profile of him, I go, well, he looks pretty cool in this fashion spread, but it must be kind of miserable to me. <laughs> like, he hasn't had that great a career when you look, well, successful career, but he looks cool in this fashion spread. I guess that's okay. But if you were actually, li- and I hope he's happy, but if you're actually living that life or like married to Vincent Gallo, like there would be a lot of hard afternoons of like, what's that movie you're making now? How much? Bleh. So, um, so I think we tend to romanticize the artist a lot in the society. It's the, it, we're, we're living in a romantic time of you know the ipod the cool and and who's that uh the guy the the i can't even remember the guy the, uh he's black he's got the dreadlocks he's always really cool and i cannot name a song that he's done michael franti no 
I'm just naming all the black guys I can think of with well, I think there's a J there and the Bob Marley. It's Bob Marley. No, isn't no, 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 it? no. Yeah, not like Lenny. No, I think it's Lenny Kravitz. I think, I think I'm thinking of Bob Marley. No, no, no. I'm thinking no, Bob Marley. I think I think of Lenny Kravitz. You're thinking like, of the song "No Woman, No Cry" by I'm, Bob no, Marley. No, no, no. I am. <laughs> I believe. Oh, wooden nickel. I, I think I'm thinking of Lenny Kravitz. Lenny as a Kravitz. Of fact, who always looks so cool and groovy, or like Lou Reed. They look so cool and groovy. Like, what do they? I don't know. They just look really groovy. But I don't really. If I were to enumerate on a piece of paper what they've actually contributed, uh, I, I would go. I, I don't really know what that is. But they. You look might do great. better with Lou Reed than with uh, Lenny Kravitz. Maybe marginally better. Yeah. But uh, but for the coolness factor, for how cool they're considered to be and what they've actually accomplished, meh, maybe a little bit amped. And I'm you know. so I think that the the life of the artist is so very romanticized now and we all sort of want that but we don't really know what that is and you could actually be living that life and it wouldn't feel like that life so you you got fired right in the middle of this realization that you would have to find a place for your kids to go to school and your choices here essentially uh, as you saw them initially were Move someplace with fancy public schools, right. and which you hear in Los Angeles means buy a million dollar home. Exactly. Uh, quite literally, a, a million dollar home, yes. eight eight hundred thousand at the very least. Yes. Um, or get your kids into some kind of fancy private school where you hoped your public radio notoriety might help, and it turned out to kind of maybe help. But then you realize, oh, fancy private school costs twenty thousand dollars a year, twenty five thousand dollars a year for one child, and I have two. Um, what did you think of the possibility at that time of sending your kids to to the neighborhood public school? I, I, I never even considered it. And, um, and I think it is because also how we construct ourselves now in like the 24 hour news cycle. One of my favorite statistics is an average weekday edition of the New York Times contains more data than the typical 17th century British villager came across in his or her entire life. So, but from <laughs> information anxiety. So you are surrounded by news all the time, and information anxiety is the sense of being pelted in with more information than you can actually do anything about. In, in contemporary America, we are surrounded by data in the same way that in the 17th century they were surrounded by cow leavings. Thank you so much. But instead of being able to sweep up the cow leavings and fertilize the field... And human leavings. And human leavings. Or bake bread or make it in a cycle. You cannot make sense of this news cycle that you're in. And you're just inundated with it. So you come up with a passivity passivity and an anxiety. So hence, the neighborhood school, and in L.A., people don't really walk around their neighborhoods necessarily that much. You've constructed, you've just heard kind of a rumor, there's a pit bull in there, and there, there's shootings, and there's a fire. that I, It would never even consider, consider, I would not consider to go to my local school and visit it. And I think also in our generation, or my generation and later... They actually do the gang hand signs to the itsy bitsy sure, spider. Yeah, to the itsy bitsy, the, I pledge allegiance to the gang sign. But, um, our third, you know, it's like the Starbucksization of modern culture, where star, our third place, our public place, is a Starbucks. So we're used to the public town square being a Starbucks, meaning there will be track lighting, there will be the Nina Simone, loving you, stories of Costa Rica and the beans that traveled so far to see you, because that's how much the Costa Rica beans care about you. And, you know, maybe a Lenny Kravitz CD, you sure. know, the Lenny Kravitz. Yeah, absolutely. In, yeah, I cannot get away I think you're from... thinking of Bob Marley. I know. No, it's, I'm I think sure you are. it's Lenny. Reasonably. Kravitz. Um, so that's your place. So that, that feels natural to you. So, you know, when you walk into the DMV with the fluorescent lighting and the holy Christ, 
Christ, they're ugly people there. There's no Nina Simone or Lenny Kravitz. You go, this is wrong. This is just like totally wrong. And so when you go to many of our public schools, again, they look the sad American flag hanging. You go, well, this is what I left. I don't want to go back here. So, um, yeah, so I think it's it's really a jarring thing to enter back into that world. You write about uh, your first visit to your neighborhood public school after you are essentially soundly defeated by the private school system. Yes. I don't know how else to describe it, but you've been routed um, <laughs> like Napoleon at Waterloo <laughs> yes. uh, by, the, by the private school system. And you realize, oh, my choice is this school that's down the street from me. And I, I thought it was I thought it was poignant that you wrote about uh, uh, realizing one block into your three block walk that you should have worn different <laughs> shoes, and perhaps even that you should you might even should own different shoes. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. You enter this school, and and your first impression is that uh, unlike McDonald's. Uh, you can't get anyone to say, can I help you? Yeah, and that is a huge, yeah, I mean, it, it is a huge thing. And I think that is, you know, serious, in all seriousness, like that ways that public education has to come into the 21st century um, and, and that we need to retrain. And I think that often sort of my class of people, the Taipei anxious, demanding middle class parents, especially the moms, we all know the crazy ass you can believe that soccer moms who's like zoom around and they're those crazy women and i think this this book is also a little bit of a pain did i say i always see on the page pain to those crazy women it is the woman who's always mocked the crazy pta mom running around but i think those women are incredible force again it's sad in this election that sarah palin has temporarily taken that uh, heading but i think we'll get it we democrats will get it back um but those crazy women who are so often mocked i think also in the women's movement it's kind of like those women are, are the groovy kind of uh you know bi cult bisexual university academic who's in tibet i mean those are kind of the women that we laud but that crazy pta mom those are i think there's something sacred about those um women that run around and do that so um I think that that is um, really important, and I think that those women are going to drive like public education to the front office. I mean, people walk around here in L.A., and they're the first person that you know demand of the demanding chattering classes to go into that public school front office. And one said there was a picture of a gun with a red slash through it on the front door, <laughs> and she was like, "Going that." Get that off the front of your elementary, because I think that's the way the government, you know, and the, I don't think the government is necessarily an evil being. It's sometimes good, sometimes bad. I think of it as this great lumbering bear that arrows are shot in through the side and it keeps lumbering headlessly forward that, you know, the government. Put, but we have to make it more customer service friendly. You seem you seem, though, in in the book, if there's a moral to this story, it seems like. You're very hopeful about having getting involved in this world. Yeah, I totally. I am. I am a, a total optimist. I'm. Uh, I. I. I love our country. If I can say that, wooden nickels and all. I'll believe I think it. It's, Don't worry. <laughs> Um, I'm totally optimistic. And, and for me, it's a matter of using, you know, where people will go. People are so of my class, the chattering class, they're so afraid of bureaucracy where they go, oh, it's the bureaucracy, the indigo Democrats, as I like to say, it's that great b Borg that will swallow us whole. And you go, OK, it's a form. Let's look at this form. I'm a writer. I can read English. I can rock this grant. I can rock this. I'm not an idiot. We can read English. We don't have to catastrophize it to a large emotional thing. You can figure stuff out. And I figured out with our, our LA Unified School District, you know, it has the biggest instrument repair shop 
on on the on the, the North American continent on on you know uh, unlimited amount of like upright pianos you just have to order them i go why didn't anyone ever tell us about this they go no one ever asked it's a huge re- the big school districts have huge resources and you just have to figure out how to use them i use the costco example that it's like costco ugly lighting you know 18 packs of toilet paper that you don't need but like there's glenlivet and hothouse tomatoes you just have to sort through it and so you need some people like these mavens to sort through and get value for that private schools are much better at customer service to a point that they seem like these lovely spas with their own soaps and their own lotions and they make the parents feel better but it's such a price so i'm very i'm very optimistic and i think uh, democracy is woolly but great how about that do you think it's woolly here's here's the the question that it suggested to me and this is you know your uh, the argument that you're making there is a is a great argument for people of of middle class means who uh have the uh, time and opportunity to deeply engage in their school. I, I know from my own experience, having attended, um, uh, uh, being the scholarship kid at a fancy private school for a while, and then going to, uh, it was called the Nueva Learning Center in, in Hillsborough, California. Interesting. And then attending a, a public high school in San Francisco, that there are, there are these places where the bureaucracy entrenches things that are horrible. I mean, I had some. I had the chance to go to a relatively good public high school in San Francisco, but there were teachers who were horrifically incompetent, for example, just really, really incompetent in a way that I it had never occurred to me that a teacher could be super incompetent because they would just hire somebody else. A lot of people, you know, have general interest degrees and are looking for a nice job that makes them feel like better people. You know what I mean? Like, no offense to teachers out there. It's a challenging job. My, my mother's a teacher. But, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a pool of potential workers. You could fire someone who is incompetent if it weren't for this nightmarish bureaucracy. And that's the kind of stuff that somebody who uh, may not have the leisure time you or I might have has to engage with. So how, what, what is to be done about that problem? Those, those intractable issues that uh, maybe there isn't somebody to, to there isn't a Sarah, pa- pa- Sarah Palin to come <laughs> save Trig. I don't think, I think you could take it on a case-by-case basis. I don't think the, there is bureaucracy, but I, I think it is, is way overhyped of the terror and the fear of it that it is. I think sometimes, as I found in my own school, my plant manager will use the word bureaucracy, and it meant he was too lazy to do something and didn't think I was going to make that second follow-up phone call to the LAUSD safety, head of safety office practices, who was on my speed dial, who I could say, no, actually, that paperwork says you can use that little... You know, so I think people use that the word bureaucracy as a big boo Halloween spook word, but if you kind of chop through it, some are more difficult, some are less difficult, but that's part of a demo- I think that's part of a democracy. I think also, you know, there can be some boring and bad teachers. I think in my day in the golden era of California public school, there was, you know, the driver's ed teacher, he's going to put his hand on your leg. He's a bit of a drunk. You know, grow up. It's fine. It's part of life. Um, you know, and certainly, yeah, the seventh grade drunk poetry teacher, I would be drunk too if I was teaching poetry too kids that age um so i think you can rock through it but I, and i think there just need to be more citizens involved and there aren't my driver's t- teacher didn't have a driver's license <laughs> well that's that's, that's, that's the bad. truth ruth okay okay all right san francisco sorry about that that is that is pretty bad um but i think that you can make it is inform it's about information sharing and, and and so we have started like these craigslisty things uh 
free parent-to-parent online advice blog. We have one, askamagnetyenta.wordpress.com. we got to get a better and shorter name. But I think through Craigslist, type Waze and Wikipedia, people can build information. I was recently with my sister in San Francisco. We were in Golden Gate Park with the kids. We're walking along, and we see car keys dropped on, on the sidewalk. And we go, oh, my goodness, it's the middle of the day. We wanted to wait with these car keys. We know somebody was going to miss these keys. I mean, this is a big, big chain of keys and so a silicon valley type guy is running by and he says oh someone dropped their keys and go yeah it's terrible and he goes you know what i would do i would put a listing on craigslist to say we found your keys at golden gate park and i go wouldn't you tell the police should we give it to the police he goes no i don't trust the police they'll break in and whatever and i go this is an interesting time where a certain class of people uh, define however you are will go to craigslist first roommates tai chi the way people find each other on computer, they can share a lot of information quickly. I think something like Wikipedia is a fascinating example of what can be done. And I think if public school parents rock the Wikipedia, they can chop through a lot of problems. And I've had that I've had that experience on Yahoo Parent Groups that we can chop it through. If we can organize the information, we can solve it. Sandra Tsinglo is a radio commentator, performer, and author based in Los Angeles. Her most recent book is Mother on Fire, a true motherfucking story about parenting. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson, with some help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The show edited by Nick White. The intern is Casey O'Brien. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you will find... Not only uh, all of our past Sound of Young America programs, or almost all of them, uh, several years worth at least, uh, but also our other shows like Jordan Jesse Go, which you really ought to check out sometime because I really like doing it. A lot of people like listening to it. I bet you might like listening to it. Uh, and uh, the Casper Hauser Comedy Podcast, all kinds of other stuff. It's all online, MaximumFun.org. If you have thoughts about the show, you can email me, my email address, jesse at MaximumFun.org. That's J-E-S-S-E at MaximumFun.org. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so directly. You can find a donation button on our homepage at MaximumFun.org. Two bucks a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, twenty bucks a month. It's cheap to support the sound of young America. Okay, we'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org.